Hello, welcome to the Healing of Emotional Wounds podcast series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Let me summarise what we have covered up till now. Healing is a natural intelligence in the psyche, but can easily be blocked or repressed. It is the task of therapists of all descriptions to be, as it were, the midwife to the rebirth of this intelligence, this healing energy within the client. There are four stages of psychotherapy that I outline. First is comprehension and containment, that is the initial symptoms, the initial meetings. Secondly, the analysis, where the in-depth understanding of the development of the personality and character of the client is undertaken. Thirdly, is the alignment to the deep psyche, whereby the client is orientated towards the unconscious and various methods are suggested of how to do this. And fourthly, is the integration process by which this exploration that has been undertaken is integrated so that the client may progress and change. It is tempting to think of these stages as sequential, one following the other, and indeed sometimes they are. Sometimes the client comes in and receives the initial comprehension and containment, there follows a substantial period of analysis, there follows a deeper process with the alignment to the unconscious, and finally there is a, as were, a grand integration process. However, to some extent, these are taking place simultaneously. For example, as analysis proceeds, stage two, there has to be a certain amount of integration and alignment to the deep psyche taking place for it to be effective. As the alignment to the deep psyche takes place, stage three, there will continue to be a deepening analysis. And as the integration process takes place, greater understanding and capacity to align to the deep psyche takes place. Integration is taking place, of course, throughout the whole period, but typically when the first three stages have been completed, the integration process is so much more complete. We initially concentrated on stage three. Why? Because stage one is fairly explanatory, the comprehension and containment. It's not too difficult to understand this process of listening and summarising reflecting back to the client and making the client feel comfortable with the working alliance. Stage two, the analysis, is widely covered in the literature and training. The analysis of character, each school of training has its own model, subscribes to some grand theorists like Freud or Melanie Klein or Eric Erickson or Carl Jung and so on, and generally adopts the way of understanding that the psyche develops that belongs to that school. Stage three and stage four are the ones I'm concentrating on in these podcasts because they are less covered. Stage three we started with, that is the alignment to the deep psyche. And now we are moving into examining stage four, that is the integration process. We've suggested that this divides into three parts. The first part was covered in our last podcast that is the evaluation of the health of the material that comes from the psyche. Why? Because the healthier and more whole this material is, the more capable the client is of integration of that material. In this podcast, we deal with the second part of the integration process, that is, the capacity to work psychologically 
with the material from the unconscious. Many visionary experiences of the inner world may not fully reach consciousness. A client may go into her inner world, descend into her pain, have visions of great intensity and meaning, receive personal and profound information, surface 20 minutes later, and remember absolutely nothing. If this seems strange, consider how little of the dream world one remembers on awakening. The vast majority of the material in the unconscious is simply lost to consciousness, evaporating in the morning light. Such a forgetting is more typical of the earlier stages of the work. However, it demonstrates the point. Deep visionary experiences may only have temporary or little impact upon character. At first, it may be the task of the therapist to remember the inner experience undergone by the client, thereby giving it enduring value. As the work progresses, such inner world experiences are retained and owned more clearly by the conscious mind. The material from the unconscious has to be worked with psychologically for progress to occur. At the opposite extreme are those who are overconnected to their spiritual life. They may remember many dreams, keep diaries of their inner world, be completely absorbed in their own fantasy or aesthetic world. They may see synchronistic signs in tiny details of their life and chance occurrences. They may flood conversations with spiritual references and only feel alive when in the company of other spiritually minded people. Such people, unlike the example above, seem to remember a great deal from the unconscious and can build spiritual mountains out of apparent molehills. They may live only to see the spiritual teacher who is the source of life and meaning. If the first case was of someone not in contact with the inner world, this is someone with insufficient distance from it, a relatively undifferentiated ego, a sense of identity that cannot achieve its relative autonomy but is continually circling around the larger orbit of the spiritual teacher or message. For this person, a greater autonomy and strengthening of the ego is required, with less flooding by archetypal material. A critical distance of the ego is beneficial in order for psychological work to take place. A number of case studies now illustrate the different abilities to work psychologically. Each case will show how this ability, or lack of it, influences the capacity for integration, without which progress, be it psychotherapeutic or spiritual, is not possible. First case. A woman in her 40s, Sarah, I'll call her, came to therapy with depression. She had an intense spiritual disposition and was given to dramatic inner visions. Here is one. I am in great suffering, almost dying in my mother's womb. Next I am in a dark cloud, as a child, bereft of my father's love. Just as I am giving up, I see a white light that gives me hope. In this vision of her personal condition, she realised she was endangered from the start of her life and had been unable to receive desperately wanted love from her father, never having found it with her mother. Yet she found a spiritual light, a mystical connection, which sustained her. 
Within this visionary experience, she comprehended how much pressure she put on people in personal and especially intimate relationships, how much she depended on her friendships, and how disappointed she felt by being let down. This helped her adapt and be more tolerant. Sarah also realised that her mystical tendencies compensated for the emotional deprivation of her infancy. Here, personal development occurs as a result of her visionary experience and the capacity to work psychologically with the material from the unconscious. With respect to the content of these experiences, it is remarkable how many visions are of this nature. They may have a dramatic and fantastic scene, similar to dreams, in which one of the central actors is the subject herself. Information is somehow transmitted during this vision, much as it can be in dreams. The subject will say words to the effect, I was informed, or I was given to understand, or it was communicated to me, and there follows important information which is highly accurate as to the subject's character state and present situation. It sometimes contains condensed advice as to what to do next and how to progress. This compressed information can be enormous, while the images or phrases communicating it may be sparse, rather like a short email with a large attachment. This wisdom comes from the deep psyche, and few doubt it when they receive it. So, it follows, there is some source within the healthy psyche which pushes for personal development, is highly aware of the difficulties being encountered by the ego, as well as the psyche as a whole, portraying the state of conflict in all its complexities in a marvellous, compact story from the inner world. In contrast to Sarah, consider Matthew, who was given to inner visions, chakra work and powerful dreams, not grounded in psychological work. In a spiritual meeting, he experienced the power of his inner world which radiated energy. He felt he had great insight and had developed a preaching style of conversation, telling others what they should do with their lives. Here is someone possessed by the force of his inner world. There was very little personal identity or ego left. It was impossible to talk directly to him of these visions without a torrent of elevated speech. Fortunately, Matthew was not psychotic. He realised, with help, he should leave this inner force aside and concentrate on more mundane tasks, such as his family and job. There was simply no psychological capacity at this stage for integrating his experiences and achieving some balance between his deeper self and his ego. Moreover, the experiences were of such intensity and power, they were dangerously destabilising to his ego and had very little psychological material in them. He needed to develop a stronger ego and also moderate the intensity of his inner world before effective psychological work on this inner world could be done. On the ego-self axis, he had no transcendent function or intermediary position and was instead identified with the pole of the self. Consider another case. Stephen felt cut off from his emotions and was very isolated. He believed he was depressed because he was far from enlightenment 
and he continually strove for spiritual growth. His depression was compensated by projections onto the Guru, who held Stephen together, giving him meaning, hope, a feeling of love and connection. Stephen had a series of dreams in which his guru appeared in a bad light. Any suggestion from me they were a compensation for his conscious position, an inner attempt to correct his excessively idealistic attitude was rejected by him, receiving his scorn a threat to end the therapy. Instead, he offered his own explanation, twisting and turning the symbolisms to suit an interpretation favourable to his spiritual stance. Stephen did not have an accessible inner voice or essential inner awareness with which to inquire within himself about his depressed condition. If he had, he might have been able to accept information as to his one-sided obsession with his spiritual path. Instead of a capacity for inner awareness, he had a monitor checking everything he did and dismissing anything out of line with the prevailing spiritual orthodoxy his ego espoused. A few comments. In the above cases, the possibility of progress and integration is determined by the presence or absence of the ability to work psychologically. Sarah showed a capacity to work productively on the material coming from the deep psyche. Matthew had an ego which was overwhelmed by the force of his deeper material. And Stephen was blocked from access to deeper feelings, replacing them instead with views of his spiritual group. The task of the practitioner at this stage, therefore, is to assess the psychological attitude and the ability to genuinely work with the contents of the psyche that are brought forward. In two of the above cases, there is an absence of the ability to work psychologically with material from the deep psyche. This limits or prevents integration, and therefore the practitioner should concentrate on building up this capacity before expecting progress. An unfavourable psychological attitude thus prevents the process of integration even beginning. So what then is a favourable psychological attitude? Eight points are mentioned below. The closer to the eighth, the more developed this capacity is. Of course, one does not expect expertise in all these areas, but I suggest that some facility, openness, or at least willingness to learn in the first six areas I'm going to present constitute a basic psychological attitude suitable for all psychological growth, while progress in the last two, number seven and eight, constitute higher level functioning and operates when the symbolic archetypal or transpersonal world is contacted and deep healing takes place. When somebody is lacking in a number of these or has them to a limited extent, it is more useful to attempt to develop them rather than expect an integration process to happen automatically. In many cases, it is a balanced position with respect to these psychological attitudes that is desirable for effective work. So now I'm going to briefly mention what these eight psychological aptitudes, capacities are, and then in our next podcast, I'll go into them in more detail. So we begin with the most obvious and simple, well, apparently simple. Firstly is the capacity for introspection. A capacity to look inwards is essential for psychotherapy to be effective. 
Otherwise, there can be no character examination or change. That sounds obvious, doesn't it? But it's quite easy for someone to come to therapy and simply talk about their external life and other people. It's the capacity for introspection that really matters. Secondly, the capacity to contact and express emotion and to access the truth in them. One thing is to be emotional. It's quite another to be introspective and have a critical attitude to one's emotions, to engage with them with an introspective consciousness. It's yet another level to find the deep truth inside of one's emotions, and this we'll address later. Thirdly, to see oneself and others more objectively. While introspection is necessary, it is by no means sufficient for effective psychotherapy. In fact, in some cases, it can be counterproductive when not balanced with some objectivity. So the capacity of the client to, as it were, see themselves from other people's points of view is very important. Fourthly, the acceptance of self-responsibility. A healthy psychological attitude accepts responsibility for one's actions and their effects upon others. Yes, of course it's easy to come to therapy and be a victim and complain about one's life. But the psychological attitude that's going to promote growth and transformation is the acceptance of responsibility for one's own inner condition and for the conditions of one's life. Fifthly, awareness that one's psyche consists of different but interrelated parts is beneficial to psychological work. Sixthly, the conscious attitude is aligned to the unconscious but also relatively independent. This implies there is a healthy dialogue between consciousness and the unconscious, so the ability to contact elicit the contents of the unconscious and to work with it, and at the same time for a stronger ego to develop, which can dialogue with the unconscious, can orientate one in one's life, make realistic and objective decisions, along with its capacity, inner capacity, to contact the inner world and work with its contents. This balance between the conscious and the unconscious, what Jung called the transcendent function, is vital. Seventhly, the existence of a symbolic attitude is especially linked to healing, since it reaches the unconscious, which expresses itself through symbols, thereby activating healing and transformative intelligence. Eighthly, the ability to contact and work with the contents of the deep psyche, with the faculty of inner awareness. I will explain this in more detail when we reach it. But the special facility to work with the contents of the unconscious, not just with the ego, not just with analysis, but deep in the psyche with one's inner awareness, is vital for the transformative action. In our next podcast, I wish to explain each of these in more detail. The awareness of the therapist of these dimensions, of the capacity to work psychologically, is key to understanding the progress, or otherwise, of the client's.